Well, this is the time for our in-depth in Bible study, these seminars today and tomorrow. So I hope you brought your Bibles. We're going to be digging into the Word of God this morning on a very important subject. I just want to make one announcement. I always bring with me extra study materials, little booklets and pamphlets on various subjects that I consider very important, some of which I have written, others have written these little things. You remember the Joe Cruz type of booklets, those little styled books. So if you would like some extra things to take home with you, just ask me at any time this week and I'll be glad to share a few things with you. So I'll leave that up to you if you want extra study materials. All right, I think we're ready to start, and uh, we will just get our Bibles out and see what we can do. The one God sent as a special messenger to His people, the end-time remnant, said repeatedly that God had not given all truth to those living in her generation, that God had more truth, and she called it new light, to be given and shared with His people as circumstances made it necessary and as people opened their hearts to the leading of the Holy Spirit. So, in the past 30 years, I have received many compilations of new light for Seventh-day Adventists to consider, and the necessity of studying these new ideas carefully, and that is exactly that Ellen, what Ellen White said we should do. Some Seventh-day Adventists have taken these statements very seriously, and they have come up with ideas new to Adventism. Now remember, this is not that group of people who uh, have borrowed old error from the churches of Babylon and are trying to persuade us that the gospel allows us to live with some degree of inevitable sin in our lives, and that's the everlasting gospel of the apostles and the reformers. It's not that people. It's not those who are trying to persuade us that the standards of the church are just Victorian traditions that must be discarded if we want to be relevant and have growing churches. It's not that group of people. This group of people are very faithful Seventh-day Adventists. They are holding to the absolute authority of the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. They believe fully in our landmark doctrines. They are living up to all the light they have. They are faithful in lifestyle to the high standards revealed to the end-time remnant. That's the group of people I'm talking about right now. See, there's only one thing wrong with Adventism. We have overstayed our time in this world by a hundred years. And now we're coming up with problems because of that. Uh, reasons why we're not in heaven. What's the reason for the long delay? And some are teaching that we have been in error on crucial issues, and only when we correct these errors do we have any hope of being the final generation and going home. Now I came across one inspired statement from Ellen White, which I never saw in those compilations that I received over the years. It's found in the Ellen White biography by Arthur White, volume 3, page 259, and it is written by Ellen White. I think I want to put it up on the screen so you can see this for yourself and read it for yourself. Is that on the screen now? All right, good. From that which the Lord has been pleased to show me, there will arise just such ones all along, and many more of them claiming to have new light, which is a side issue, an entering wedge. 
the widening will increase until there is a breach made between those who accept these views and those who believe the third angel's message. Just as soon as these new ideas are accepted, then there will be a drawing away from those whom God has used in the work, for the minds begin to doubt and withdraw from the leaders because God has laid them aside and chosen more humble men to do His work. This is the only interpretation they can give to this matter, as the leaders do not see this important light. That's an interesting statement. Now notice that the accepting of this new light that she's talking about here leads to a drawing apart from the body in small enclaves of those who have been, this has been revealed to them, who have been enlightened. It leads to a loss of fellowship and trust with those who had previously been friends and counselors. So today we're going to examine one area of new light. Uh, this will not be an exhaustive analysis of all the texts and the reasons, but I hope enough to make informed decisions about the merits of the issues capturing, capturing the loyalty of many faithful Seventh-day Adventists whose only motive is to prepare to meet Jesus in spotless robes of righteousness. Now, this is a presentation that includes more than I'm covering this morning. There is one that I'm not going to be covering, which is the sacred name theory that says the only name that you can use to worship God is some variant of Yahweh or Yeshua. Uh, this is on my DVD in case you would like to have that. I'll not be covering that this morning. I'm going to move ahead quickly to a, the section that we are going to be dealing with right now, and that is the Trinity. The contemporary anti-Trinity movement teaches that there is no third person of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is a force or an energy or a holy influence from the Father and the Son. This is a direct quotation. The Bible teaches that there are only two who are worthy of worship. A corollary of this teaching is that Jesus is literally the Son of the Father, literally, having a beginning back in prehistory when the Father brought Him into existence. Again, a quotation. The Father and Son are both divine, but not absolutely equal. Only in this way could Christ die. Since the Father is immortal, they say, and could not die, the Son has to be brought into existence if He can die at all. Now, in support of this teaching, they point to our pioneers who taught this theory from the 1840s to the 1890s. Now, as with all errors, there is a truth at the foundation of this teaching. After the Council of Nicaea, the great Christian council in 325 A.D., the papal party took the title of Trinitarians. They said that the Godhead consists of three personalities and one essence or substance, and it became very philosophical and metaphysical. I'm going to share with you just a brief sample of instruction for confirmation for a good Catholic. Follow this little statement. The Son proceeds from the Father by an act of the intellect, 
And this is termed eternal generation, by which we mean not only that there never was a time when the Father existed without generating the Son, but also that the act of generation is a continuous act. It teaches that there could be no separation between the Father and the Son on earth, since this would interrupt the act of generation, thus the Son would not exist, which would mean that the Father would not exist, so they could never be separated even on earth, since they were of one essence, the, neither, the, 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 uh, neither the Father nor the Son could exist apart from the others. How about that? Was that nice and clear? Here is a historian statement. In the formation of the doctrine of the Trinity, the concept of the eternal generation of the Son was one of the essential and major factors. The doctrine of the Trinity was discussed, shaped, and confessed around the concept of the eternal generation. So to understand the Catholic view of the Trinity, you have to understand eternal generation of the Father and the Son. Here is from a convert's catechism of Catholic doctrine. The Son proceeds from the Father by generation, and generation means the process of begetting offspring, reproduction, or giving birth to. So the Father gave birth to the Son in some way from their own teachings. Um, my, may I just say this? Is there any wonder that our pioneers rejected the Catholic doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, J.N. Andrews wrote, This doctrine destroys the personality of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, they did reject it, but remember what they were rejecting. We'll come back to that. So if we are going to defend the biblical truth that there are three persons with the family name of God, maybe we would be better off to use the biblical term, which is Godhead. Trinity has been co-opted in some very significant ways. So what we're going to do is just run through some issues relating to this, and I hope your Bibles are handy, because we're going to dig into the Word of God. Are there really three beings with one name in Scripture? Well, we'll start with the most common one, Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. Matthew 28, 19, as Jesus left them, His last word to them were, was, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. So notice here, the word name is singular. The name, not names. Name. And all three, which means that all three that follow are on the same level. The name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. It is one name. And the definite article is used with all of the three beings. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. So this very brief statement is saying that there are three beings that are God, and yet there is one God. This is one of the great mysterious teachings of Scripture that even today we have a hard time wrapping our minds around. And for the Muslim world, it's almost an impossible concept. It is a very difficult mystery of Scripture that we are dealing with this morning. And none of the illustrations that we commonly use about triangles and various things, they really don't do the job, because this is one of the truly great mysteries of Scripture. Well, let's try a few other texts. Let's just see what the Bible says. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. When Jesus says he will send someone after he leaves. 
John 14 and verse 16. Very common statement again. We're all very familiar with it. And I will pray the Father, and He shall give you another Comforter, that He may abide with you forever. Now the word another is a very important word. It means another of the same kind. He is saying, I will send you another like me, another one of the same kind as I am to be your comforter. That word another is significant there. Another like me of the same kind. Let's go to another text. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Three gifts from three beings. Three gifts, each with a different aspect from the three beings in the Godhead. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Now notice carefully here. Again, we have three. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Three different things that the three beings do in the Godhead. I thought we had the next one up. I'm sorry. We should have one more up there. All right? Three beings with one name. We have three functions here of three beings. Three functions that are very crucial. One is foreknowledge. One is sanctification. One is the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. All right. Two or three statements from Ellen White's writings. One from Testimonies, Volume 8, page 254. Volume 8, 254. She refers to the three great powers of heaven. The three great powers of heaven. Another from Evangelism, page 615 through 617. There are three living persons of the heavenly trio. Catch those words. Three persons heavenly trio, not duet, trio. Evangelism again, the, the eternal heavenly dignitaries, God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, three eternal dignitaries. The three highest powers in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Three highest powers. That's a consistent way that Ellen White refers to the members of the Godhead. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that means three beings with one name, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As I say, one of the great mysteries, hard to wrap our minds around, but nevertheless taught in Scripture. All right, let's move to the next then. What about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit clearly seen as an individual with a personality? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Can a force be grieved? Can a power be grieved? Can an influence be grieved? Or can a person be grieved? It has, a person has the potential of grief. 
sorrow. We understand that easily with Jesus Christ, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The Holy Spirit can be grieved in the same way that Christ could be grieved. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. Talking about the gifts of the Spirit, previous verses, but all these worketh that one and the selfsame Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. This indicates choice. He decides which of us get what gift. It is a decision the Holy Spirit makes. We all receive gifts. He makes the decision. We don't. Choice. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray as for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So here we have the Holy Spirit. We know Jesus makes intercession for us. Now the Holy Spirit is making intercessions for us because we need His help to approach the throne of God. Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. And we will read verses 6 and 7. Paul is on one of his missionary journeys. Now when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mysia, they essayed to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered or allowed them not. So here the Holy Spirit is making some commands. Don't go here, go there. Decision-making powers once again. Try Acts chapter 15. Acts 15, verse 28. This is that great church council that was held in Jerusalem to decide whether circumcision would be the way they would go or not. Acts 15, 28, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Are the apostles individuals with decision-making abilities? Us? This is good to the Holy Spirit and to us. So is the Holy Spirit a decision-making individual with choices to make? The Holy Spirit is put in the same category of making decisions here as the apostles were. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. It's the very familiar story of Ananias and Sapphira. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Two things there. First of all, they lied to the Holy Spirit. You don't lie to a force. You don't lie to an influence. You can reject an influence, but you can't lie to it. You can lie to a person. And this particular person is specifically called God. You have lied to God. So that, I think, is very significant. All right, just a few statements from Ellen White. Selected Messages, Volume 1, page 344. 1SM 344. Christ, our mediator, and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding in man's behalf. 
But the Spirit pleads not for us, as does Christ, who presents His blood. The Spirit works upon our hearts. The Spirit doesn't do the same work that, the, that Christ does. Christ pleads His blood. The Holy Spirit impresses upon our hearts the conviction of sin. Two different work, works by two different individuals. And then again from Evangelism 6.16 and 6.17. The Holy Spirit, who is as much a person as God is a person, is walking through these grounds. That was in Avondale when she was there in that school. The Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit has a personality. All right. I do think that there is evidence that the Holy Spirit does have a is a person and has a personality. With that said, I now want to share with you something else here that becomes really important to understand. Ellen White warned us from becoming overly dogmatic on this subject. If you want to look it up, it's in Manuscript Releases, Volume 14, 175 to 180. It's a little longer than I normally read, but it is really, really important. Brethren should not feel that it is a virtue to stand apart, because they do not see all minor points in exactly the same light. If on fundamental truths they are at an agreement, they should not differ and dispute about matters of little real importance. To dwell on perplexing questions that, after all, are of no vital importance has a direct tendency to call the mind away from truths which are vital to the saving of the soul. Brethren should be very modest in urging these side issues which, are, which often they do not themselves understand, points that they do not know to be truth, and that it is not essential to their salvation to know. Where these differences exist among us, those who stand outside will say, it will be time enough for us to believe as you do when you can agree among yourselves as to what constitutes truth. The ungodly take advantage of the divisions and controversies among Christians. Some are ever seeking to be original, to bring out something new and startling, and they do not realize as they should the importance of preserving the unity of the faith and the bonds of love. We are to pray for divine enlightenment, but at the same time we should be careful how we receive everything termed new light. We must beware lest under cover of searching for new truth, Satan shall divert our minds from Christ and the special truths for this time. I have been shown that it is the device of the enemy to lead minds to dwell upon some obscure or unimportant point, something that is not fully revealed or is not essential to our salvation. This has made the absorbing theme the, quote, present truth, when all their investigations and suppositions only serve to make matters more obscure than before and to confuse the minds of some who ought to be seeking for oneness through sanctification of the truth. Now that's a very general and a very important statement, that we must not allow ourselves to be diverted to side issues and areas which are not important for salvation. Now what exactly is one of those side issues not essential to salvation? She continues, the nature of the Holy Spirit is a mystery not clearly revealed, and you will never be able to explain it to others because the Lord has not revealed it to you. You may gather together scriptures and put your construction upon them, but the application is not correct. It is not essential for you to know and be able to define just what the Holy Spirit is. 
there are many mysteries which I do not seek to understand or to explain. They are too high for me and too high for you. On some of these points, silence is golden. Your mind is restless. You would make the mistake that many others have made of thinking that you have new light when it is only a new phase of error. You may take certain views of Scripture, and searching the Bible in the light of your ideas may gather together a large number of texts and claim that they mean this and that and call for anyone to prove to you that your views are incorrect. Here is your danger of diverting minds from the real issues of this time. Now, my brother, it is truth that we want and must have, but do not introduce error as a new truth. And that counsel, my friends, applies to all areas of new light that we examine, that we must be very careful that it is truly new light and not a new phase of old error which has come to us. In fact, I'm going to share again with you a few of the statements from the Catholic Church on this point to get you to understand, get all of us to understand clearly what the pioneers were rejecting. God is a spirit. And the first act of a spirit brings forth the knowledge of himself, his own image. This was a living person of the same substance and one with the Father. This is God the Son. Thus the Father begets the Son, the divine word, the wisdom of the Father. Their mutual love is breathed forth as it were a living person, one with them and of their own substance. This is God the Holy Ghost. Thus the Holy Ghost, the spirit of love, proceeds from the Father and the Son. God the Father eternally knows Himself and thus continues to bring forth the Son. How about that? Is that a clear exposition of the Godhead? Or does it totally cloud the issue with words that are very difficult for even the most scholarly mind to understand? That's what our pioneers were rejecting. That's what they were saying they couldn't be a part of and did not want to accept. All right. So let's move to number three. What about the eternal existence of Jesus Christ? John 1. Got to start there, don't we? John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Careful. Jesus was not only with the Father, but He was God. Not a God, as the Jehovah's Witness translation translates that verse, but He was God. He was the creator of everything. The life principle was in Him. He did not receive life from anyone. He is the eternal Word. Now let's get to more specific areas. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 58. This is an amazing statement. He's in the midst of a big argument with the Jews about how he could possibly, possibly be before he was on this earth. The Jews said unto him in verse 57, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was... I am. I hope you know what that, those last two words mean. This was not just a statement that he lived before Abraham. This was a claim. Let's find that claim. It's in back in the book of Exodus. 
Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 14. This is when Moses is sent back to, to uh, Egypt to uh, talk to his people and convince them that this was the time for deliverance. And uh, they will, uh, and Moses was afraid that they would not know what he was there for. Was there, he there on his own authority? And they will ask uh, about the God he represents. What is his name? Verse 14, Exodus 3, 14. And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. Jesus is claiming that name. Jesus is saying, Before Abraham was, I am the one who talked to Moses and sent him to deliver you as a people. Ellen White has a very interesting statement on this in Desire of Ages 469 and 470. The name of God, 469 and 470. The name of God given to Moses to express the idea of the eternal presence had been claimed as his own. The name of God had been claimed by Jesus as his name. He had announced himself to be the self-existent one whose goings forth have been from of old from the days of eternity. That's why they took up stones to stone him. Because he was claiming to be not a God, not a son of God, but God himself. He was claiming to be the great I Am that all good Jews worshipped all their centuries. God's Amazing Grace, page 43. All through the pages of sacred history, where the dealings of God with His chosen people are recorded, there are burning traces of the great I Am. That's true all the way through the Old Testament. We know that name mostly as Jehovah, which is a transliteration, but wrongly done, of Yahweh, which is the noun form of the I Am, the verb. All of those titles or names mean the same thing. All the communion, listen, all the communion between heaven and the fallen race had been through Christ in the Old Testament. All those statements, the Lord has spoken to Jeremiah, the Lord has spoken to uh, Isaiah, Ezekiel, is through Christ. Christ is the Yahweh, the Jehovah, the I Am of the Old Testament. She continues, Christ is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So remember, Whenever you read about Yahweh or Jehovah in the Old Testament, you're reading about Jesus Christ. Let's just take one sample of one verse in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 28. Isaiah 40 and verse 28. This again is describing, and when, as you probably know, that in the King James Version of the Bible, when the word Lord is in capital letters, it is a transliteration of Yahweh, the noun form of I Am. All right. So in verse 28, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, there is no searching of his understanding. Notice, the everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, Ellen White has just informed us that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the everlasting God of the Old Testament, the Yahweh, the I Am, that led them through all of their wilderness wanderings and brought them into the Promised Land. A few other statements from Ellen White's writings, Desire of Ages, page 530. 
in Christ is life, original, unborrowed, underived. That kind of nails it all down, doesn't it? Original life, not borrowed from other source, not derived from another being, not brought into existence at some point in prehistory. Evangelism, page 615. Christ is the pre-existent, self-existent, key word, self-existent Son of God. He assures us that there never was a time when He was not in close fellowship with the eternal God. He is the eternal, self-existent Son. Put those two together. Eternal, self-existent. Bible Commentary, Volume 5, 1115. From all eternity, Christ was united with the Father. From all eternity. Review and Herald, April 5, 1906. April 5, 1906. Christ was God essentially and in the highest sense. He was with God from all eternity. In the highest sense. He was not a lesser God. He was not a derived God. Now, Patriarchs and Prophets, pages 63 and 64, tells us something very important about why this is essential. Only one equal with God could make atonement for the fallen race. Only a lawgiver could redeem those who had broken the law. Only the creator of life could redeem those who had been created. You see, if Christ had received life from the Father at some point in eternity, which is what is being taught, by this movement today, that he received life from the Father at some point in eternity. If his life was borrowed or derived from the Father, if he was dependent on the Father for his very existence, he would not have existed if the Father had not brought him into existence, then he was not God in the highest sense. And he is not eternal, and he could not make atonement for the fallen race and redeem mankind. If Christ was not fully God, God would have been punishing an innocent third party who had also been created or brought into existence by God. Only one who is immortal in his very nature can offer everlasting life to the, to the human race. And by the way, I'm sure you know that the term only begotten son is a faulty translation. Uh, let's check that out if there's any question about that at all. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17. Hebrews 11, 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried, offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his what? Only begotten son? That's wrong on two levels, isn't it? Number one, Isaac was not the only begotten. He was not even the firstborn. And yet he is called his only begotten son. Do you see why the word has to mean unique, one of a kind, special? None other like Isaac. He was the son of promise. He was not the son of human activity. He was the son of a miracle. And that's what one of a kind means. Uniquely special. One of a kind. And by the way, there is another text which is interesting. It doesn't use the phrase only begotten. It's in Acts chapter 13. 
Acts chapter 13 and verse 33. Acts 13 and verse 33, which is talking about Jesus. God hath fulfilled the same unto us their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second psalm, This thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Now that's not talking about his birth, is it? That's talking about his resurrection. Raised up again, this day have I begotten thee. So a case could be made that the word begotten has as much to do with his resurrection as with his birth. And uh, that's an interesting use of this word, begotten, again. I think it's more than interesting that a, an individual called Mary of Agreda, a, vi a visionary Catholic nun in the 1600s, said that the word was conceived by eternal generation from the Father, and Christ was born before time existed. And that is exactly what is being taught by the present anti-Trinity movement. Interesting, taken directly from Catholic understandings here. Also, by the way, the Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox position. So I have a suggestion, a suggestion, take it for what it's worth, to resolve some apparent contradictions that we even find in Scripture. It seems like it. The nature of the Godhead is not the central theme in Scripture. God has never just spelled it out clearly and precisely, even throughout all of Scripture. Where it is discussed, in the very few places it is discussed, it reveals three equal beings, all existing from eternity, one in purpose and mind, in ways impossible for created beings. But it is not a major theme of Scripture. It appears here and there in spots. So we will move to the next point. The central issue in Scripture is not the nature of the Godhead, but the function of the Godhead, what they do. And it is always, always in descending order from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. It is a de uh, always descending in that order. This is the way, apparently, that the Godhead wants all created beings to approach Him. Directly to the Father? No, through the Holy Spirit, through Christ, to the Father. The Father is the ultimate authority. Jesus is the visible representative to created beings. The Holy Spirit is the invisible presence working on the hearts of created beings. You know, if we're confused today, even the angels were confused before sin ever entered the universe. The Father had to explain to the angels in angelic session the difference between Christ and Lucifer, when Lucifer was challenging the place of Christ in the Godhead. Since both Lucifer and Christ had similar functions, they represented God to the created beings, it was easy for even angels to say, they're both the same, aren't they? They do the same work. Maybe Lucifer is right. So if there was a misunderstanding in heaven, may we be forgiven to have problems today figuring out the mystery, the mystery of the Godhead. Here's the point. Christ always directs attention to the Father, not to Himself. He always points to the Father. He takes a secondary role to the Heavenly Father. Then the Holy Spirit always directs attention to Christ and the Father. He takes the third role, almost invisible, most of the time. So again, Equal in nature, 
but unequal in function and rank as they relate to created beings. That's the best, I think, that we can do on this subject to try to understand it. All right, let's move to the next point. The Godhead apparently has chosen to reveal itself gradually to the human race. Apparently this has never been one of the crucial issues for the redemption of mankind to understand exactly the relations of the three beings. In the Old Testament, Yahweh is that personal name for God, Jehovah. And the name is interchangeable for the Father and the Son. You're never quite sure, unless you really dig deep, is it the Father speaking or is it the Son speaking, because it doesn't really matter. The name is interchangeable. The Holy Spirit? If you would have asked a person in Isaiah's time, what do you know about the Holy Spirit? I think you'd have gotten a blank stare. I don't think much was known about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Yes, the Spirit was moving on the face of the waters, but mm, that wasn't precisely clear either. There are indications of plurality in the Old Testament, more than one, but the emphasis is always on one God. The Lord our God is one Lord, the great Shema of the Israelite people. That was their focus. The Lord our God is one. Now in the New Testament, more revelation came to bear because Christ had now come down in bodily form. So we have the Word of God, the Son of God. And then... Christ reveals to us another aspect, the Holy Spirit, who is our comforter, better translated advocate, one who stands for us, one who is our lawyer, if you will. The emphasis is on three beings in one Godhead, descending in rank and function from the Father to the Son to the Holy Spirit. That's what the New Testament reveals. Early Seventh-day Adventists. Were they concerned with this issue? Not at all. They were concerned with the sanctuary and the 2300 days. That was the issue of the early pioneers. They were concerned with the Bible, not tradition. The Word of God as the authority, not the traditions of the fathers. They were concerned with the seventh day Sabbath and the law of God. There was very little study or even revelation from God through Ellen White about the Trinity, if you want to use that term. Very little discussed about that by our pioneers. And as I said earlier, the Trinity in the early 1800s was a mixture of the Bible, medieval philosophy, and the early church councils. There was a group during that time, before Adventism came into existence, called the Christian Connection. They were absolutely certain that the Trinity was a Catholic doctrine and unscriptural. And guess what? Joseph Bates and James White were members of the Christian connection. And because the Trinity apparently made the Father and the Son identical, it was rejected by our pioneers. Here's just a sample from Joseph Bates on what he wrote on this. He said, Respecting the Trinity, I concluded that it was an impossibility for me to believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, was also the Almighty God, the Father, one and the same being. I said to my Father, if you can convince me that we are one in this sense, that you are my father and I your son, and also that I am your father and you my son, then I can believe in the Trinity. That's why they objected to the Trinity doctrine. It made them really just one essence with three different faces shining out at different times. 
And the pioneer said, no, that's not what the Bible teaches. That is not correct. So, apparently God was satisfied to leave it this way. Not make it an issue among the pioneers. Not get everything corrected at the same time until about the 1890s. And by the way, the 1890s was the period of time when the last generation was supposed to be formed to go home. Translation. Maybe God said, this is the last thing I need to get clear in your minds. Ellen White was in Australia during those years. W.W. Prescott visited her in Australia. He had developed a new style of evangelism based not on doctrines primarily, but on righteousness by faith and the character of God. Guess where that came from? The 1888 message of Jones and Wagoner. Prescott began to preach this way. And he spent time working with Ellen White in Australia. And he began to question some of our pioneers' teachings on the nature and the deity of Jesus Christ, because our pioneers believed Christ had a beginning. He did not exist from all eternity. And he began to question this. A.G. Daniels, the president of the General Conference, supported his new direction. And this was the very same time when Ellen White was putting together Desire of Ages. And in that book, she differed sharply with our pioneers on the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. M.L. Andreasen, he had just become a Seventh-day Adventist four years earlier. He said that some of the leaders doubted that Ellen White had really written, quote, in him was life, original, unborrowed, underived. She couldn't have written that. That's not true. He derived life from the Father. He didn't have original life. She couldn't have written that. So, M.L., did what some others hadn't been willing to do. In 1902, he made a special trip out to California to Elmshaven, where Ellen White was uh, uh, residing at that time, to investigate this statement, original, unborrowed, underived. And he actually found these statements in her own handwriting. This was not a forgery. This was not an insertion. This was not something that someone had gotten into her writings without her knowing it in her own handwriting. He found this statement that we refer, I referred to earlier. And that was enough for M.L. Andreas and from that point on. And because of her influence and the new study on the Godhead, the Adventist understanding of the Godhead took a different direction from the pioneers. That's just a fact. That's what happened. That is not the same as our earliest pioneers, including James White, taught in the early years. Why so late? Ah, God has priorities. He knows we can't handle everything all at the same time. So he starts us out not with theology. In the 1840s, the message was publishing. Get the word out. Get the message out. Bright beams of light shining over the whole earth. Publishing was the message of the 1840s. In the 1850s, it was church organization. You can't just go on loosely with everyone doing willy-nilly what is right in their own eyes. We have to be organized. We have to be a body. That was the 1850s. Health reform in the 1860s, more important than all of the doctrines, apparently. Health reform in the 1860s. The body is a temple of the Holy Ghost. What we're doing this weekend is combining some theology with some health reform that's coming up shortly. And that's crucially important. Then in the 1880s, what did God choose next? 
righteousness by faith. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Not being so doctrinally centered, even though doctrines are hugely important, but not being so centered on them, we lose focus of the one who is behind and in all of the doctrines and our relationship to him. God simply paced the introduction of new truth to preserve unity in the church so the church wouldn't fracture at very various points in its existence. So very simply, the character of God was more important than the nature of God. And God simply said, we'll let that one go for a while. Don't make that an issue of contention. And so we come to our last point. Now some, and remember who I'm talking about, the faithful Adventists, the really serious Adventists, who are preparing for the second coming of Christ, are advocating a return to our pioneers' anti-Trinity position. And here is the most dangerous aspect, is the question raised by its chief advocate. Did Ellen White write all that has been published under her name? Did Ellen White write all that has been published under her name? Oh, my friends, this is something we really, really need to think through carefully. Whenever we find something in her writings which contradicts our beliefs about some position we have taken, we find some acceptable reason to set her aside. That can apply to any one of us at any time. This, my friends, is the heart of higher criticism of the Bible. Well, you don't really have to believe in the literal creation record of Genesis 1. It could have happened over many millions of years. You don't have to believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. That was just something to make it exciting and special for the disciples. Higher criticism says we can reinterpret what the original inspired author said, because it just doesn't fit with what we know today. Same thing applies to Ellen White, my friends. If it doesn't fit with our cherished preconceptions, and that makes her writings of none effect. Doesn't deny her writings. Remember I said these are all people who believe solidly in the writings of Ellen White, but not her full authority making her writings of none effect because we are picking and choosing those statements which fit our preconceptions and setting aside those statements which do not under some pretext. And there are many pretexts here. Well, Ellen White was young when she wrote that. My teacher, when I was in school a long time ago, was asked that very same question. How old was Ellen White when she wrote this particular statement? A student asked him. And he scratched his English beard a little bit, and he said, how old was the Holy Spirit just then? <laughs> Some say you set aside her later writings because uh, they're not as, as, as pure as the earlier writings. Great controversy after 1858 can't be trusted, etc., etc. Some say that people inserted things into her writings without her knowing it. Do you think God would allow that in the Bible? That would, there would be untruth inserted into His Word so that we couldn't tell the difference? If God is going to speak to us at all, will He not protect what He has spoken? Or else we're saying that God isn't a very good handler of truth. And Ellen White isn't a very good handler of what God revealed to her. 
Here's a statement that someone said. Ellen White was inspired by God in almost all her writings, but either she or someone messed with her writings. Colloquial, but that's what is being taught right on this subject. That means that everyone is free to pick and choose whatever agrees with our opinions. The essence of higher criticism. So I'm going to suggest that perhaps even conservative Seventh-day Adventists will have to decide between the authority of God and the authority of men. It's not just liberal. It's conservative Adventists who have opinions, too, that they do not want to give up when faced with clear, inspired statements. So those are the reasons, at least some of them, why I believe that there is a three-part Godhead, that uh, Jesus Christ is eternal on the same level as the Father, and that our pioneers had good reasons for rejecting the Catholic version of the Trinity, which is way different from the biblical version of the Godhead. And we do not have to apologize for believing in a very mysterious doctrine, three persons, one God. Can't explain it, can't fathom it, it's a mystery, but it is a divinely given mystery, not simply something that we're trying to avoid. We are trying to grapple with it. We are trying to understand it and make as much sense as we possibly can about it. Now, I just want to say this. This is a seminar, so if there was something which I was unclear about and you needed to get some more information, raise your hand right now and I'd be delighted to see what I can do. Yes, here's one right here. Oh, a copy, all right. Is there anything that I didn't uh, explain too clearly and you would like to have a better explanation about? Yes. Number one on the screen, um, you know, you, you uh, were mentioning there's a, a hierarchy of roles or whatever. Function, Father to Son to Holy Spirit. Uh, I'm just, I, I was a little uncomfortable with that. My thinking is, there is quite a strong emphasis on the equality of Christ, and maybe you could just elaborate on that a little bit. Again, I'm going to go back to the same thing that happened in the um, angelic host when Christ and Lucifer were doing exactly as the angels saw it, the same work, and uh, they were, there was question as to why Christ should be in the Godhead and Lucifer should not, since they were both representing Christ to the angels. So if there was that kind of representation, the Father is there. Uh, as you have probably read, uh, no one can see the Father and live. It doesn't say that about Christ, because we have seen Christ in human form. And even the, uh, the um, uh, inspired writers like John saw Christ after He had been taken to heaven in His glory. And uh, that was very impressive, but they didn't see the Father. So there is something different there in the way the Father and the Son relate to created beings. The Father in light unapproachable, the Son revealing as much as could be understood or accepted or tolerated by created beings, and the Holy Spirit impressing that upon the mind. So I think that, the, that Jesus Christ is doing a, um, a work which the Father does not do, which means that He is representing and He's revealing the Father. And he would always, you know, on earth, he would say, there is none good but the Father. And of course, how can that apply? Jesus was as good as anyone could ever be. But he would always point to the Father. 
And he, he said that I came to reveal the Father. So that's why I think that there is a, a difference in function in the way they relate to created beings. One more? I think with that, the sensitivity can be with hierarchy versus function. Good point. Hierarchy is not a good term. Yeah, now the function, you can have the same power, same everything, you're just doing a different task. A different task. That's right, like a CEO and a CFO, chief financial officer. Once again, we're getting into parallels that don't work, but that's a little help. Different functions, different needs. You know, I, I guess if, if we really believe that there's this three-being Godhead, that uh, I'm glad that they kind of boil it down to one as the ultimate Father that we pray to. Because I have a hard time talking to three different beings at the same time. And I think the Godhead re realized that we need to focus on the Father, make our prayers to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. Right here. The, the uh, number four up here... I, I like to think of it as different functions of the Godhead. God is love, and one element of love is humility. Okay. And it's hard to wrap my mind around uh, the Holy Spirit being divine and still being humble. But the Holy Spirit points to Christ, and Christ points to the Father. There's a humility in the, in the Godhead. Yeah. And, he, and then he said that we were created in his image. And then he, he translates that into our relational uh, things in our families and everything. Yes. So I think the, I, like, I would like the word uh, different better than unequal. All right. All right. Very good. Good point. Now, I would just make this point, too. If we think of the Holy Spirit, if the Holy Spirit is as much God as the Father and the Son are, with the same nature, same qualities, you hardly read anything about him in the Bible. Just a snatch here and a snatch there and a verse here and a verse over there. He doesn't describe himself. He's the one who inspires the prophets. Couldn't he have told us a lot of things about what he was? But he doesn't talk about himself. He totally ignores himself. Total humility, if you want to put it in those terms. Total humility. And saying, I won't even talk about myself. You won't know much about me. I don't know about you, but I'm waiting to see what the Holy Spirit looks like when we get to heaven. I don't know. It's a mystery. And uh, Ellen White warns us away from speculation on that point. A question over here? Right over there. All right. I, I just wanted to be sure about something. Because you hear this a lot with pastors. That, that, that um, when he said, let us make man together. In our image yeah let us make man in our image yes so they they were all three there together yes but when adam and eve sinned and the decision was made i'll go down for man uh-huh pastors say that god decided to come down to earth as a babe in the form of man and called himself jesus all right um, it depends on what is meant by that. It can be probably not too bad, but again, God, the one, the, the, the being we call God in three uh, aspects, three persons, three individuals, God did decide to come down to earth. Emmanuel means God with us. That's the name that was one of the names given to Jesus. But again, it was only one of those three. It wasn't all three that came to earth. So it was one, the Son of God, because He was the one that had that function, that role, that purpose, that He came down to this earth. 
But again, it was God. God had, was, 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 Je was Jesus. So there is a truth there, but it needs to be carefully explained that it was one being of the three that made the decision to be part of the human family forever, by the way, to retain his human nature. He'll never be the same as he was before. He'll be part of the human family for all eternity. So in a very significant way, he will have not quite the same nature as he had before or the Father or the Holy Spirit for the rest of eternity. That's the mind-boggling thing. Did he go back into the 100% divine? Ah, he did, but he retains his human nature. And there's a mystery. What does that mean? Did he send the Holy Spirit because he couldn't be in all places at the same time? All of these are mysteries. And uh, so something is the not the same as it was before. Yes? Last one, by the way. We'll close now. Uh, the Son, that's what the, the Godhead has perfect harmony. Um, the Son carries out what the Father said. Yes. The Holy Spirit is sent by the Son. Matthew 20, uh, 12, 32 says, And whosoever speaketh the word against the Son, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Father, How about that? It shall not be forgiven him. Yeah. Neither in this world, nor in the world. That's an incredible statement. Yeah. If, if you reject the, the, uh, the teachings of Christ, you may be misunderstanding Him. The, Jew, the Jews may have prejudiced you against Him. But if you aren't listening to the Holy Spirit, there's nothing more I can do for you. That's amazing. All right. We're going to have to close. I do have uh, just a few. I don't have too many. I have a few compilations of some of the important Ellen White statements on this. So if you want one of these, come up after the meeting and I'll share them with you as long as they last. Uh, also, um, tomorrow I'm going to be talking about another New Light issue, which is very strong right now in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It's called the Feast Day Movement. Uh, I have several of these presentations. I also talk about the Yahweh issue, the sacred name. I talk about the futurism idea, the aspects of making the book of Revelation and Daniel into the future, day for day instead of day for year. But I'm not going to be talking about those. I have DVDs on those if some of you want to take a look at those. I have a DVD set on New Light for Seventh-day Adventists. Tomorrow we'll focus on the feast day issue in the same way we dealt here with the Trinity issue. So um, that's, our, that's, our, that's where we're heading uh, tomorrow. I hope you join us, and we will have another study time together. Now, I just want to let you know that we're going to have a 15-minute break, and then my son gets to talk to you. How many of you have seen his presentations in past years? Quite a few of you. All right, so you know what's coming. He's the naturalist in our family. And he takes us down from the high theological mountain down to the level of the second book of nature where we can all relate to these cute, cuddly little creatures and squirmy little creatures out there and what they tell us about our Creator God. And today's presentation, as you probably saw in the outline, is called The God-Given Gift of Animal Architecture. And that's a very interesting subject. How in the world did animals figure out how to build homes? And he's going to talk about that. And can they pass on that knowledge to their children? This is how you do it. You put this stick in here and then you do that, like we do with our children. And so this is one of the powerful evidences of creation that denies evolutionary theory. And by the way, 
you need to be here in the first five minutes when he lays out the premise because that sort of focuses the whole presentation. If you miss that, you're kind of going to be at sea in the presentation. So right at 11, at 11.45 is the time when he will be presenting, and don't miss those first five minutes. It's crucial to understanding the presentation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we have studied one of your great mysteries, as we have tried to understand what we can barely feebly touch, oh Lord, I just pray that we will see the important thing that our God is a loving, caring, just God, that Jesus Christ, the representative of the Father, is the one who shows us the character of the Father. And may we never, never turn away the Holy Spirit's impressions upon our hearts and our minds. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.